Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to another African Studies podcast, part of the New Books Network consortium of podcasts dedicated to raising the level of public discourse by introducing serious authors to serious audiences. I'm your host, Jim Lance, and today I am pleased to have as my guest, George Enzangola Entelaja, Professor of African, Afri- African American, and Diaspora Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Past President of the African Studies Association of the United States, and of the African Association of Political Science. Professor Enzangola is the author of several books and numerous articles on African politics, development, and conflict issues. I'll just mention a few of his books in English, that he's written in English. These include Revolution and Counter-Revolution in Africa, Nation Building and State Building in Africa. He's also the editor of The Crisis in Zaire, Myths and Realities, and of Conflict in the Horn of Africa, and he's co-editor of The State and Democracy in Africa and of The Oxford Companion to Politics of the World. His major work, or at least the one that I as a grad student have become most, is most, I, I as a grad student is mo, am most familiar with, is the Congo from Leopold to, to Kabila, A People's History, which won the 2004 Best Book Award of the African Politics Conference Group, an organization of U.S.-based political scientists specializing on Africa. We'll be talking about his new biography of Patrice Lumumba, entitled simply Patrice Lumumba, just published by Ohio University Press as part of the as part of the Ohio Short Histories of Africa series. As historian David Gibbs observes, Lumumba was a pivotal player in the history of African nationalism, in the same league as Mandela in terms of his influence. Yet, as with so many prominent figures from earlier generations of Africans struggling for liberation, in the U.S. at least, Lumumba seems shrouded in the mists of memories from another time. This is truly unfortunate because Lumumba confronted issues and challenges that Africans are still encountering, and his life and legacy merit widespread, widespread recognition and understanding. George, welcome to the program, and thank you for uh, being willing to be a guest. My pleasure. Why don't you tell us a bit about yourself and... Your, feel, your early feelings about Lumumba and how he came to influence your, your role as an African and as an Africanist scholar. Well, I was uh, in high school from 1958 to 1960, uh, the period of the struggle for independence in the Congo. And as uh, uh, one of the few Congolese uh, in secondary education, we were very much interested in politics, uh, followed the news very closely on radio, read the newspapers, and uh, the school I attended was uh, uh, subscribed to most of the newspapers from Kinshasa. Although we were in the Kasai province, far away from Kinshasa, we received these papers, and we read them uh, passionately and uh, engaged in debates about politics. 
and Lumumba was always the dominant figure among the uh, politicians or the nationalist leaders, so we were very much uh, supporters of Lumumba. So I grew up uh, as an enthusiastic supporter of Lumumba. And was it true that you were um, expelled from your secondary school because of your uh, political activity? Yes, I was in April 1960, uh, two months for independence. Uh, students had uh, rioted on the campus of his boarding school, uh, Methodist Presbyterian Secondary School, uh, not too far from uh, Kananga, then called Lulaburg, uh, in the center of the Kasai province. And so I was uh, accused of being one of the so-called ringleaders of the student rebellion and was kicked out of the, the school. And how did you... Did you ever meet Lumumba yourself? No, I never met him. Uh, only heard him on the radio. Uh-huh. And how did you uh, end up traveling across the world and ending up at UNC? Well, UNC is only the latest chapter in my life. Right. I know that. <laughs> I've been in the United States since 1962. Uh, I came here as an exchange student uh, under uh, an organization known as the International Christian Youth Exchange, ICYE, which was an uh, American uh, organization by Protestant churches, uh, which came out as a result of World War II, of the uh, commitment of Americans and Germans to uh, reconcile. And so they were exchanging high school students uh, between the ages of 16 and 18, to spend a year, uh, Americans in Germany, Germans here. Uh, it grew up to include other Europeans, then to include Japanese, and after the Korean War, included uh, the Koreans. Uh, then in 1960, with the Congo crisis, the organization decided to add the Congolese. At the beginning, it was a one-way exchange, only Congolese coming to America, but by the late 60s, Americans were going to the Congo, since we now had a number of families that were willing to uh, host American students. So I came here as part of the program, second group. The first group came in 61, and I came in the second group in 62. From my reading of your book, um, Lumumba's background as a youth, he didn't really have it, this opportunity or these avenues that you pursued. Could you give us a little bit of the context in which Lumumba grew up as a young man, uh, providing some background to Belgian colonial rule, yeah. how Africans were, were treated during uh, Lumumba's youth and early manhood, and how he himself is basically uh, an autodidact, how he taught himself. Mm-hmm. Well, Lumumba grew up in, uh, in uh, a Belgian colonial territory, the Belgian Congo, where the Belgians uh, had no intention of having Congolese access uh, higher education. Uh, They were committed to only uh, providing literacy, uh, primarily in African languages, uh, to almost, as a matter of fact, in the 50s, uh, if you look at the UNESCO statistics, the Belgian Congo was highly ranked uh, in in developing countries for the number of uh, people with literacy, but most of its people uh, were literate in African languages mostly. Uh, And uh, uh, we had uh, lots of primary schools, but very few. For example, I told you that I was at the Methodist Presbyterian Secondary School, 
this was only one of two uh, academic secondary schools by Protestants in the entire Congo, uh, you know, a country that is five times the size of France, three times the size of Nigeria. We had only two Protestant secondary, uh, academic secondary schools. Others were, were vocational schools. This is what the Belgians wanted. Uh, we had schools for training nurses, training mechanics, uh, training skilled workers in the mines, and so on and so forth. Uh, but we did not want uh, people to be prepared for university. Uh, and Lumumba grew up during that time, so he went to um, uh, primary schools, both on the Catholic and Protestant side, uh, never finished because he always got expelled. Uh, even went to try out the school for uh, nursing assistants. Uh, he was also kicked out of that school. And so he decided that the best thing was to uh, learn on his own. And so uh, he went out to find a job, became a clerk, went to evening uh, classes provided by the Maris brothers, uh, a Catholic order. Uh, and so he basically is a self-educated person. You mentioned he was kicked out. Was he kicked out for political activities or other reasons? Well, he was kicked out mostly because they found him to be um, a, um, a student who did not, uh, who was not uh, very um, quiet. Uh, he was uh, a leader. He kept organizing. He kept contesting the teachers. Uh, as a matter of fact, as I explained in my book, uh, we had a situation where people would finish elementary school and then become teachers in the same school <laughs> simply because they have had some, some, some education. Uh, and so it happened that Lumumba, because of his uh, ability to, to, to acquire books and read and so on, sometimes he knew more French than the teachers who were teaching him. And he would correct them when they made mistakes. <laughs> and, and so this was considered to be very impolite. And, and, so, and also the fact that he was very enamored of a traditional dance uh, and in a very conservative uh, Protestant setting, uh, those were considered to be sinful or uh, backward. And so he was not seen uh, in a good light by the missionaries and the African teachers. Um, where did he get the resources or the materials for his self-education? Well, mostly it was uh, uh, basically finding whatever was available uh, through friends, uh, or through Congolese who had uh, uh, gone before him, who were uh, uh, medical assistants, who were nurses, uh, were people working as uh, uh, agricultural um, uh, teachers, so we had people who had gone to education and who were uh, who had some books, and so any book that Lumumba would find, he, he would read it. And certainly, uh, when he went to Kisangani, he was able to have access to a library. There was a library for the African township in Kisangani. Lumumba volunteered to be uh, a part-time librarian in uh, in the evenings and on weekends. And this allowed him to have time to uh, read. So he, he kept reading everything he could lay his hands on. What about Lumumba's family? Were they supportive of these endeavors and uh, encouraged him to pursue this, this track? Well, in, um, 
in Kasai, where he grew, where he was born and grew up, um, his uh, father was, of course, a peasant, uh, and uh, uh, he was committed to having him going to school, uh, but they couldn't really uh, give him that much support in terms of he didn't have the means to do so. Uh, in Kisangani, where he was uh, uh, an adult and on his own, uh, I think that you know his uh, uh, his wife simply tolerated the fact that uh, this man will spend long hours at the library and, and spend a lot of time in, in uh, d- during the weekend reading and so on. So, so that that could be considered to be support, I guess. <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us about his early years uh, as a civil servant and what he learned from that experience. Well, mostly he was... Um, a very ambitious person wanted to get ahead uh, because during that time, one of the major preoccupations among uh, the lower civil servants, who were all Congolese, was to be uh, treated in the same way as the European civil servants. But again, as you know, there were two uh, separate uh, civil service uh, uh, statuses. There's a status for the Europeans and a different status for the, the Africans. Uh, Europeans were, were paid much, much better, sometimes 10 or 15 times uh, the amount of money paid to Africans. Uh, they had the right to own a car, to, to have a house. Uh, uh, to have uh, you know things paid for, and of course uh, vacation back home uh, every two or three years uh, for the whole summer or for six months. Uh, and Africans had to work uh, 12 months, very little vacation, very little pay. And so the main uh, preoccupation was to fight for e- uh, equal pay, for equal work, uh, and for uh, dignity, for being treated as uh, human beings rather than being insulted as a macaque or, or, or monkey uh, and being uh, uh, discriminated against because of the skin color. Uh, and so Lumumba became very active in the associations of these, uh, uh, what you may call middle class uh, Africans, uh, those who were uh, at, at least uh, comparable to what we call the middle class today, uh, and um, rose to become uh, president, vice president, or secretary of, of several uh, organizations of the elites in, uh, in Kisangani. Uh, and so he started writing. Uh, at the beginning, his writing was very much uh, uh, informed by the colonial ideology, in the sense that he was uh, praising the uh, Belgian enterprise in the Congo as a, civil, a civilizing mission. Uh, you thought that the Belgians were out there to help the Congo develop and so on. But he was very much dismayed by the uh, racial discrimination, the racism of the system. And this really put him in, uh, uh, in conflict with many of his uh, European uh, uh, colleagues uh, in the civil service. Well, that, that raises something that I wasn't as fully aware as I should have been from reading your book, and that is that he really wasn't initially opposed to colonial rule per se, but he was opposed to the racism exactly. inherent. In exactly. So, mm-hmm. so he, re- he really wasn't, um, at this point, he really wasn't 
like a Franz Fanon or an Nkrumah no. in terms of his think, thinking about politics. Not at all, uh, because he he was very much uh, within the col- colonial ideology of a civilizing mission. Uh, in he, in the mid fifties, uh, especially nineteen fifty five, when uh, the young King Baudouin. Uh, the uh, of the Belgians went, went to the Congo for the first time. Lumumba had a 10-minute conversation with him uh, at the reception and at the governor's mansion, uh, which surprised uh, a lot of people, both Belgians and Congolese. And Lumumba was there a great believer in the uh, slogan of the Belgo-Congolese community that we were uh, that the thing to do was to create a community. Uh, that would be, would be multiracial, that would involve both Congolese and, and, and the Belgians. Uh, and uh, then in next year, 1956, he was invited to visit Belgium for the whole month, uh, traveled around the country for the whole month. Uh, and um, so when he came back, the situation started to change when he was uh, arrested on charges of having uh, embezzled funds at the post office. Well, this is you're talking about a theme or something that surprised me constantly throughout the book, and maybe as we progress in our our uh, conversation, we can address it. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how Lumumba, who really, to my reading, did not seem in this context a terribly threatening figure mm-hmm. to to the Belgians and to later on the United States in particular. Yeah. How he became how he became such a threat. So in your chapter. Uh, on what you that you call Lumumba's years of transition, you chronicle how he became more intensely involved in politics mm-hmm. and how he how he eventually came to surpass uh, other Congolese politicians who at the time were even more radical than he was, such mm-hmm. as Joseph Kasavubu. So, right. so could, could you outline how he kind of rose through the ranks politically to become the, the the major figure in Congolese politics at this time? Yes, I think that his. Um his trip to Belgium uh, was a, is very important event uh, because uh, in the Congo, the Belgians did not allow any progressive literature, uh, especially from the communist or socialist perspective, to come into the colony. All of us were banned because they did not want the Congolese to be introduced to these ideas. Uh, and I think that when Lumumba went to Belgium and uh, met a number of uh, progressive Belgians, he started looking at the world a, a little differently. Uh, and then when he came back home and was arrested and uh, jailed, you know, as, a, as an évolué, Lumumba had, uh, had uh, rose to acquire both of the distinguishing, uh, 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 distinguishing um, what, you call, uh, what you call it, uh, statuses, I would say, given to Congolese who had uh, become more or less evolved uh, or more educated or higher up. Uh, the first was the uh, civic merit card. Uh, a civic merit card meaning that you are a person of uh, merit, uh, that you are uh, uh, not uh, similar to ordinary Congolese, uh, that you can be allowed to uh, European uh, uh, cars in the trains, uh, you can be allowed into, into restaurants, into movie theaters, which are uh, frequented by Europeans, and so on and so forth. Um, then, this was in 1948, this was introduced, and uh, Lumumba, I think, got his uh, 
around 1950 or so. Then he later on got the, the new status of, of uh, uh, matriculation, uh, known in French as immatriculation. Matriculation meant that you now have the same legal status as a European, so more or less an honorary European. Uh, your children can go to European schools, like Lumumba's children dead in Kisangani. Uh, you can be tried in a, in a European court, uh, rather than in a so-called uh, native court, uh, and you had all the rights, you and your family had all the rights recognized to Europeans. But uh, there were contradictions, because in spite of this, um, this did not affect, for example, the, the wage bar, which remained a color bar. Uh, in fact, that, uh, the civil service continued with these two separate uh, 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 separate uh, branches, the European and the African branch. And Lum, for example, he was earning a salary of 5,000 Belgian francs in uh, 1956. Uh, that was equivalent to 100 US dollars. Uh, and this compared that to the salary he, he would earn only a um, few years later when he became the uh, commercial or the publicity director of the brewery in Kinshasa, he was earning 25,000, five times more, uh, and, and had a car uh, given to him uh, and housing and all that. Uh, and so there, there was a lot of, uh, uh, lot of uh, discontent among Congolese because of this uh, wage bar. Uh, this, this, this difference in wages, uh, and also the fact that um, uh, discrimination did not disappear, you know, that uh, there were still many, many uh, obstacles to enjoying life as a, as a human being or as an educated person uh, because of your skin color. Uh, and so he began to, to have um, a lot of different ideas about this. And then, of course, when he was um, arrested, as a person holding the matriculation status, he had the right to bail uh, and to, to be free until the a court makes a decision on his case. He was put in jail. Uh, Alvo, of course, as a, as a person of matriculation, he did not have to endure wearing the, the, uh, the shorts, the uh, khaki of uh, the, the uniform of the Congolese prisoners. He didn't have to be, to be whipped like uh, Congolese prisoners were whipped. He didn't have to do hard labor as Congolese prisoners. Uh, so he had all this time in jail to read. So he read a lot of books. Uh, he uh, caught up on things that he hadn't read before uh, and started thinking about uh, the future. And, and so, this, so by the time he was uh, freed in 1957, uh, he was ready to, to embark on a new, a new life. And uh, then the uh, Accra meeting in 1958-1958 changed everything for him. Right. Well, that leads to the chapter uh, in which you note that uh, everything changed after he went to Accra mm -hmm. and came back. And that really led, that really um, served as a catalyst for, for the independence struggle and speeding it up. Right. Uh, so let, if we may, let's talk a little bit about the period 1958 to 60, when where Lumumba's star really rose. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things you mentioned in the book that I think, and many people, uh, again, it's sort of an example of how historical memory has become foggy and and uh, muted. But Lumumba also had many 
ad- adversaries and opponents within the African community itself. Oh, yes. mm-hmm. So who were some of these major opponents and how did Lumumba uh, deal with them and deal with opposition and how did he really become the leading figure again? Well, the the, uh, at, at the beginning, the opposition between him and others was not really vicious. It was uh, what you'd expect in a uh, in any political uh, environment, that people would differ in terms of uh, strategies and tactics uh, and uh, positions on major issues. Uh, when he came to Kinshasa, for example, uh, he was brought into the Kinshasa uh, political class by moderates, mostly Catholic uh, intellectuals uh, like uh, uh, Joseph Ileo uh, and Joseph Ngalula, um, and uh, the uh, person who became the first uh, cardinal in the Congo, the second cardinal in, in Africa, Joseph Malulo. <laughs> it's interesting, all of them have Joseph as their first name. <laughs> but anyway, yeah. uh, the, uh, and these people uh, were, for example, in on the major issue confronting the Congo in 1956 to 58 was the uh, so-called Van Bilsen Plan. Uh, this is a, a, a pamphlet written by a Belgian professor at the Colonial, Colonial University in Antwerp uh, in December 1955 in Flemish, then was translated into French in February 1956, entitled uh, A 30-Year Plan for the Political Emancipation of Belgian Africa, meaning the Congo, Rwanda, and Burundi. Uh, and this uh, pamphlet became a major defining moment for the Congolese elite as to uh, how fast to go in attaining independence. The, mod- the Catholic uh, intellectuals I uh, mentioned were generally in agreement with uh, the Van Bilsen plan uh, and uh, uh, decided that it is a good starting but it may not be completely, uh, they may not embrace it wholeheartedly, but they too found it to be a good, uh, a good uh, platform on which to start discussions on the future of the Congo. Joseph Kasavubu, <clears throat> the leader of the alliance of the Bakongo, uh, Bakongo ethnic group, uh, they took a very, very different position. They rejected the Van Bissen plan as simply useless. They said the Congo needs its independence. And when Kasabubu presented his own counter-manifesto in August of 1956, uh, in the public he used the word independence immediate, immediate independence. And so that became the slogan of the independence struggle for the next four years in the Congo. Uh, so Lumumba, who was introduced to the Kinshasa political class by the moderates, was actually in much greater sympathy with Kasavubu on the issue of uh, the, the pace of uh, movement to independence. But he disagreed with Kasavubu on two major issues. <clears throat> Kasavubu wanted a federal system and not a unitary state. Lumumba was for a unitary state, did not want federalism. And secondly, <clears throat> Kasavubu was leading an ethnic party, the Abaco was basically exclusively a group for the Bakongo. 
uh, and Lumumba wanted a group that, I mean, to create a movement that would be open to all Congolese, from all ethnic groups, from all provinces, and so on. So this is the, so these uh, differences uh, went on to uh, become bigger as time went on, because as uh, we approached independence, uh, the uh, moderates uh, were very much uh, closer to American and Belgian positions, uh, and Kastavubu, uh, although he started out as being radical, uh, he moved more and more toward the, the moderates as independence came. Well, that brings up to me, this is the time when Lumumba became most familiar, the, the African leader most familiar to me because I did my work in Ghana, in right. Nkrumah, right. and his famous maxim, Siki first, the political kingdom. Uh, it seems, if I read your, this chapter right, it seems if Lumumba did have an ideological perspective, it was that of a nationalist. He didn't seem to be influenced by Marxist or socialist thinking, and it seems to me... He, you depict him as being relatively indifferent to issues of economy or political economy. Is that true? Very much so. Uh, in a sense that, um, well, to start with, as uh, I pointed out, in the Belgian Congo, we didn't have any socialist or Marxist literature. So Lumumba did not know what Marxism was all about. I mean, what he heard is what the Catholic priest was saying, that, you know, uh, communists are people don't believe in God, and uh, they want a community of goods, and, and in, of course, in Africa, the best way to, to scare people, I said people want a community of wives. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so that, you know, we, we heard all these uh, cliché being uh, uh, bandied about concerning communism. Uh, and uh, so he was not uh, a socialist thinker like uh, Cabral or uh, uh, Fanon or even Krumah, um, but uh, he was with them in terms of fighting for total independence. He wanted Africa to be genuinely independent and not to continue being uh, controlled by Europeans as many of the Francophone form of uh, French uh, colonies became that they were very much uh, beholden to Paris, and Paris continued to to dominate those countries. So Lumumba became uh, different from uh, uh, other leaders in the Congo by becoming closer to people like Nkrumah uh, in terms of uh, fighting for genuine independence. Uh, but when it came to economic issues, he didn't pay much attention. One, the these are issues that were not understood by many, even though he worked in a brewery for a year, a year and a half or so. Uh, he did not really understand uh, the way the economy was running in the country. Uh, and um, they felt that, you know, once we control the political power, we can take care of the economy. Uh, again, when I read this chapter, I was just kind of, I was flabbergasted at how Lumumba came to be seen as a threat. I mean, I think you mentioned the, the Economic Roundtable Conference yes. in Brussels, where basically Brussels, a Belgian economic interest, mining interest, exactly. got exactly what they want. Mm -hmm. Yet throughout the book, you, Lumumba is seen as a threat. He's branded as a communist, exactly. a socialist. And I just, why? And I well, guess that leads to how he became prime minister mm -hmm. and how he became excoriated and vilified as this demon. Well, um, you know, uh, David Gibbs, uh, the uh, person who wrote uh, that blurb and, uh, uh, for the, the book, 
um, <coughs> said in his uh, uh, evaluation on my manuscript for Ohio University Press that he found that uh, chapter 6 was really the best chapter in the, in the whole book. Uh, this is the chapter where I'm talking about the counter-revolution in right. Southern Africa. That is the Can I ask key. you about that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because, see, most people tend to say that Lumumba was killed because of the Cold War. Uh, well, the Cold War, I argue, was simply the pretext. Because uh, Lumumba was not pro-communist. As a matter of fact, and the Americans and the Belgians, they all knew this very, very well. When the mutiny of the armed forces took place on July 5th, five days after independence, who did Lumumba turn to for, for military support? The United States. <laughs> Lumumba and President Kasavubu went to the American ambassador and said, we would like the United States to intervene. Uh, and stop the Belgians from taking over the country again and having the Katanga province secede. The American ambassador told them, no, the U.S. can't intervene because we can't intervene against our NATO ally, Belgium. You better ask support from the United Nations. And so they went to the United Nations. Uh, and uh, the United Nations came in with a mandate that was clearly in favor of the request of the Lumumba government, which was to uh, help the Lumumba government maintain law and order, to evict the Belgian soldiers from Katanga province and the mercenaries who were helping Chombe secede from the Congo, uh, and to help run essential services. And so these were uh, what the UN mandate was all about. But when it came to the Katanga, the UN Secretary General, Doug Hammarskjöld, could not really uh, do what Lumumba expected him to do, which was to kick the Belgians out, because he knew that Britain and France were not in support of kicking the Belgians out. And Britain and France were members of the Security Council and also the allies of, of, uh, of Belgium as colonial powers. Uh, and so Doug um, Hammarskjöld tried to play the game his own way, uh, and he's the one who had, who had been the person drafting the Resolution Security Council and so on. Uh, and Lumumba found that what he was doing was contrary not only to, to the spirit, but to the letter even of, this, of the Council resolutions. Uh, so, going back to the, the, the main issue, the main issue was that the cessation of Katanga was not the work of Congolese. It was primarily the work of white settlers and mining companies, supported by right-wing lobbies in the United States and, and in Britain. The, uh, as you know, all of Southern Africa, from South Africa to Zambia, was under the control of white settlers. They were in control of uh, Zambia, Zimbabwe, and Malawi under the Federation of Rhodesia and Yasaland. They were in control of uh, South Africa, control of Namibia, then known as Southwest Africa, control of Angola under Portuguese rule, and control of Mozambique under Portuguese rule. And Katanga had the largest concentration of white settlers in the Congo, who were involved not only in the mining industry, 
and the associated industries, but also in farming, in, in ranching especially. And so they were very well settled. And they had, for many years, they've been fighting to gain the same kind of political power as the white settlers in the Rhodesians. But they could not, because the mining companies did not want the settlers to have so much power, because that would reduce the amount of profits they could keep, because they would have to spend a lot on, on development in Katanga and on, on social services for the settlers. But now, when Lumumba became prime minister, they saw the threat of a prime minister who would like to control the economy so that the Congolese resources can serve the mass of the people. He and became so prime they, minister in, in six, well, 1960. Became, 1960, yeah. So Lumumba yeah. became, became a threat to them, and this made it possible for the settlers and the mining companies to become allies. You know, they were adversaries during the colonial period, but as an independence approach, they became allies. Uh, and the settlers were now cl uh, claiming to, to secede from the Congo and make Katanga to be much, much closer associated with uh, Southern Africa. So that is, the, that is the main issue. And so mm -hmm. the, the European powers, supported by the United States, used the Cold War simply as a pretext, knowing full well Lumumba was not a communist, was not pro-communist. Uh, and we just use it because uh, they had to explain to their own constituencies why they were fighting Lumumba and so on. But the main thing was a struggle for the control of the area and also the fact that an independent Congo under Lumumba's control was likely to play a key role in a fight for liberation in Southern Africa. They didn't want to see right. that happen. Right. That's what really, that was the message really... Uh, what I really came away from your book, and I think Professor Gibbs, uh, I'd say the whole book is wonderful, but that, that chapter in particular really seemed to me that it was it, the domino theory here, our fear was nationalism, not communism exactly. or economic takeover. And, exactly. and I think this, the second factor was that we're dealing with settler, mm -hmm. settler colonies, not exactly. like Ghana wasn't, didn't have a large exactly. settler presence. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, so, so can you, can you outline Define and kind of just go through with us the events of the Congo crisis that led to you've, you've started, but what led to his, assass his assassination and, and really the the horrendous performance by many people, mm -hmm. uh, well, the, the UN, the yes. US in particular. Yeah, the Congo crisis started, of course, with the mutiny of the armed forces. And here again, uh, I point out to the. Uh, contradiction in Lumumba's own position, the fact that here he was uh, talking for um, independence to become a new chapter in our lives and to improve the lives of the people, but be, remained technocratic in his thinking concerning the army. And just like the same way as Nkrumah did, you know, Nkrumah uh, kept uh, British officers in the Ghanaian army uh, from 1957 up to 1961, you know, four years. Uh, it, almost all of the general officers, uh, I mean, of course there was only few generals but uh, and colonels, but the superior officers, uh, high-ranking officers, were all British, uh, very few Ghanaians, uh, because he, he believed that the Ghanaians needed more time to be trained to become uh, officers. In the Congo, we didn't have any 
The Belgian system was that the Congolese, the highest rank could be attained by Congolese was that of Sergeant Major. It only in 1959, one year for independence, some Sergeant Majors were allowed to train to become warrant officers. So, but again, all of this is non-commissioned officer rank. So we didn't have a single um, second lieutenant in our army. Not a single Congolese was a second lieutenant. Uh, and so the soldiers wanted promotions and, of course, better pay. Uh, and Lumumba said, uh, well, you know, you guys should have patience. We'll organize training for you. After training, then you become officers. The soldiers said, but how about you, Mr. Lumumba, you and your ministers, what kind of training did you have to occupy the position you are occupying, you see? Uh, and so this was the major problem. And the commander of the Force Public, uh, General Janssens, had an excellent intelligence service. He knew about the discontent within the army, and he played on it. He uh, basically instigated the, the, the mutiny. Uh, by uh, calling soldiers to a meeting in Kinshasa on the 4th of, uh, of July, went before the blackboard, and when which he wrote, before independence equals after independence. So he goes like this, he said that warrant officers, sergeants, corporals, men, independence is for civilians. You're going to demand under the control of Belgian officers, Discipline will be maintained. No disorder will be allowed. And of course, after that meeting, what happened? Soldiers went straight to the ammunition depots, broke it, opened it, and took over the guns and ammunition and went after Belgian officers. And they disarmed uh, all of them uh, and unfortunately committed some uh, acts of brutality. Uh, and uh, that really... Uh, and because of uh, how those events were uh, shown in the Belgian press and the, the um, uh, uh, sidewalk radio among the Europeans, uh, the, the Ramur Mill among the Europeans, uh, Europeans started leaving the country. So we had the uh, exodus of, uh, of thousands. We had 100,000 Belgians in the Congo at independence. Most of them left the country. Uh, and uh, so this brought about a major problem in terms of the breakdown in essential services uh, and, of course, in uh, law and order. And uh, so that's why the UN was called upon to come, uh, but then the UN did not uh, act in a way that Lumumba had expected them to act, which his main concern being that they should not uh, allow Belgian troops to be stationed in Katanga to be supporting the secession of Katanga province. And so this is what made uh, uh, Lumumba an enemy to uh, the Belgians and then, of course, became an enemy to the Americans when, when the uh, UN refused to help him uh, expel Belgians from Katanga. Lumumba called on the Soviet Union for military support. Soviet Union sent in logistical support, uh, planes, transport planes especially, and uh, not any, uh, not any uh, uh, trains, I mean, planes for bombing, anything like that, just transport planes, trucks, and some technicians to help in uh, logistics. Uh, that was seen as, uh, as real, real sin by the West. 
uh, and uh, is a ma major provocation from Lumumba. Uh, and uh, the CIA was called upon by the uh, President Eisenhower to take action to kill Lumumba. Uh, the Belgians also uh, set up a uh, plot to, to kill him as well. Uh, so this is where the whole problem started. And of course, they used uh, the Congolese, uh, especially on the uh, advice of uh, the CIA station master in um, Kinshasa, Mr. Devlin, uh, who felt that uh, the CIA plot to kill Lumumba by poisoning his food and toothpaste was ludicrous. Uh, felt that uh, it would be very difficult to penetrate the security of Lumumba's residence to do that, and felt that the best strategy was to use his Congolese uh, adversaries to eliminate him politically and eventually physically. And that's exactly what was done, because all of them, as Stephen Weissman has pointed out in his numerous publications, uh, the uh, uh, President Kasavubu, a number of the ministers and other people, became in a pay of the CIA uh, to be uh, used as uh, individuals who would act against Lumumba, and that's what they did. Kasavubu dismissed Lumumba unjustifiably on uh, September the 5th, uh, and uh, Parliament rejected his decision, uh, but then on September 14, Mobutu staged a coup d'etat with the support of the uh, General Ketani of Morocco, who was the number two commander in the UN force in, in, in the Congo. Uh, and so this led to Lumumba's uh, being held hostage, being held basically prisoner in his residence uh, under house arrest uh, until when he tried to, uh, to run away on November 27, and when he was pursued and caught and then imprisoned until he was assassinated on January 17, 1961. And he was only about, what, 36 years old, is that? He was 35. 35. Yeah, he was born on uh, July 2nd, 1925. Uh, so at Independence, he was 34. He became 35 two days after Independence, and he died at 35 and a half. I was reading an article in The Guardian about, uh, which claimed that Lumumba's assassination was the most important political assassination of the 20th century. Um, that, was my, the fact, that was my article. That was your article, in yeah, fact. That yeah. is true. <laughs> uh, the, uh, I, I quoted, uh, what I quoted was a Belgian sociologist, uh, Ludo de Witt, uh, who wrote the, the, really the best book there is on Lumumba's assassination, entitled The Assassination of Lumumba. That's what he's, he says in his book, mm -hmm. and I was quoting him, yeah. Well, that kind of leads to a what-if question, um, and I know that they're sort of silly, but what if, Lumumba hadn't been assassinated and his his role as prime minister had continued. What do you think the trajectory, how would the trajectory of Congolese history differ, have differed? Would it be quite different? Uh, I would imagine that uh, Lumumba, at best, he would have become a leader like Julius Nyerere in Tanzania. At worst, he would become Sekuture in Guinea, uh, given the uh, uh, dynamics of politics in Africa. Uh, but we don't know. Uh, no one can really uh, tell what would have happened. That's just uh, my own imagination. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, what, uh, uh, as Jean-Paul Sartre wrote in uh, 
the introduction to uh, Jean Vallier's book, The Political Thought of Patrice Lumumba, uh, Jean Postal said that uh, Lumumba dead uh, is probably uh, a greater uh, uh, plus for the, for the Congo in Africa than Lumumba life. <laughs> and, and that's, that's probably true uh, because of, of his death, uh, what he did was uh, uh, he gave it, he, he left a great legacy, the legacy of commitment to national unity. That's why it would be very, very difficult for all those people who are trying to break up the Congo into several states, uh, beginning with Chombe, with the session of Katanga in 1960, uh, will find it very, very difficult because the people of the Congo are very, very committed to national unity. Uh, the, the idea of a single Congo is very, very uh, strong among the Congolese. And, and part, that's mostly because of Lumumba. Uh, and also this commitment that the Congo's resources are to be used for development of its people. Uh, and so there is a commitment to national unity, commitment to development, commitment to pan-Africanism. All of these are part of the heritage of Patrice Lumumba. So I think that uh, uh, he had served uh, uh, a great purpose uh, in terms of the political history of, of our country. And those are indeed no small achievements for, as you mentioned, uh, the Congo is five times the size of France and three times the size of Nigeria. Mm. And to instill, instill among peoples in a territory so vast a sense of national unity and purpose right. is truly important. Because when I was in Ghana, the question was, what does it mean to be a Ghanaian? And mm. Ghana is only about the size of Oregon. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've been talking with Professor George Nzengola Entalaja about his book, his uh, part of the Ohio University's Short Histories, uh, Short Histories of Africa series, his book, his biography of Patrice Lumumba, simply entitled Patrice Lumumba. It's a very important book. It's a book that uh, anyone can read. It's not for specialists in Africa or people who are experts in African politics. It's a book about a, a key figure in 20th century global history, and it's one that should be read. Professor Nzengola, I can't thank you enough for being part of the program. I will. Uh, it should be up on on the New Books Network within a day or two, okay. and uh, I hope I can see you at a at ASA conference and sure. meet you face to face. Okay, thank you very much. Huh? Thank you very much. Right, my pleasure.